welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Catherine Pasqualone, and I'm a client advisor within the North America Institutional Business here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm pleased to introduce my colleague, Paul Quincy, our head of global equities. Over the next hour, we're going to shed some light on what we're seeing in the market and how it's impacting global equities. In order to facilitate this discussion, I'm going to pose some questions that I've prepared for Paul. So, Paul, why don't we jump right in? Your team meets quarterly to discuss what we're seeing in the market and our outlook for the next three to five years. Can you talk to us about the recent quarterly strategy summit and some of the conclusions that have been drawn from this meeting? Sure, I'll be happy to. Thanks, Catherine. Hi to everybody. First of all, what is our quarterly strategy session? So in global equities, we are investing actively in all three regions, Asia, Europe, and the US. We based everything on fundamental research, but our portfolio teams will focus on one part of the world's market and take their own decisions. So they're not always going to agree on everything, and they don't have to either. But we do think there is a value in getting the teams together once a quarter to share their ideas on the big trends, the best opportunities, the biggest risks. And we did it this time on March the 24th. At that point, the S&P was a little bit off the lows, but still almost 30% below where it had been a month before. As a few weeks have passed since then, and one can almost begin to get used to what we're dealing with here, it's perhaps worth remembering the scale of the shock to markets that we had just seen was truly of historic proportions. We had the fastest 20% drop in U.S. equity since the Great Depression, We were experiencing the highest volatility in equity markets ever, higher even than we saw in 2008. And frankly, I never thought we would live through that kind of volatility again. We saw, of course, as you know from calls earlier with Bob Michael, there's much pressure on the debt markets as in 2008 when the entire health of the world's banking system was in question. And all of this really came from nowhere. So whereas in the great financial crisis, markets had peaked about a year before the crisis really intensified in September 2008, the failure of Lehman Brothers, by that point, the S&P was already down around 15%. Some of the problems were already in people's minds. This time, U.S. equities had hit a record high on February the 19th. Just 20 trading days later, stocks had lost a third of their value. So it was an incredibly dramatic backdrop to the discussion. I'd say we had three conclusions. The first was that markets are attractive. Now, for every one of these sessions, I ask each of the 30 portfolio managers what they think about markets, and I give them one of three choices, better than average returns from here, average or below average, just to keep it simple. And 90% of the group this time said they thought market returns would be attractive from that starting point. I've never seen such a strong consensus as that. And I think there were two sort of forces behind it. One, reading that sentiment, which is a good contrarian indicator, at least in the near term, was incredibly negative. Uh, Gary Devolapalli and our team in New York, for example, measures what the market thinks about the stocks in his portfolio based on sell-side target prices and momentum and stuff like that. He go from record complacency to record panic in just a couple of weeks. And we saw similar things around the world. So investors had already got very scared and very nervous. And secondly, valuations. Valuations were pretty reasonable in most markets around the world and actually downright cheap in some. So reasonably positive on markets taking a two to three year view, whilst recognizing in the short term things are still very difficult. Secondly, opportunities for stock selection within markets, very high. 
tremendous stock dispersion, tremendous dispersion in fundamentals, and as we'll get onto a little later in the call, tremendous dispersion in the way stocks were being priced. All that suggested great opportunities for active managers that could get that right. And thirdly, sort of balancing this, incredibly high near-term risks. So we were dealing with not just a slowdown, but a shutdown. And while at that point, the monetary and fiscal response was still unfolding, it was already very impressive, of course. Central banks bought $1.4 trillion worth of securities in March. That's five times the previous monthly record. But for companies facing a collapse in demand, and particularly companies with stressed balance sheets, the worries are very, very obvious. So investors were looking at taking advantage of some of those situations, but still very cautious about doing so. So markets attractively priced, great opportunities within markets, but a tremendous amount of stuff to get through in the short term. Great. That's helpful, Paul. So obviously a lot of opportunity and runway given the drawdown, but can you talk to us about how the crisis has sort of been impacted by region? Are there opportunities in certain areas relative to others that the team is talking about? Yeah, so as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, we are investing in all three of the world's regions. This is a truly global crisis, of course. It looked for just a week or so as if this was something that was all about China, and clearly it's far from that. I would say by region, Europe has been the worst hit, which is partly the severity of the pandemic there, partly some of the existing structural issues and slow growth, and partly just micro factors, not macro. The best performing industry throughout this has been, of course, technology. Well, 75% of the world's technology stocks are in the US. Europe has only five. So the mix of industries available to you when you invest in Europe just doesn't help. At the other end of the scale, Japan is a place where the shutdown has been less aggressive. And of course, China, ironically, given this is where the pandemic started, then Chinese stocks are down around 6% year to date, thanks to an incredibly rapid and severe response which apparently has been effective, and also very aggressive government intervention in markets as well. But I think over the regional differences, it's really the industry that matters much more. This crisis is having a very disproportionate effect on some industries, and it's much more important, I think, to consider whether you're looking at an energy company versus a software company than whether the company is based in the United States or Europe or Asia. The industry dynamics are really much more important. Great. That's helpful. One other question I had, I mean, obviously, we talk a lot about sustainable investing and the importance of ESG in the investment process. How did that come up during the summit? Was there more of an emphasis on these sustainable factors or less, given what's going on right now? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure it was the first thing we were talking about, but I would say that as advocates for the importance of so-called ESG factors would point out that broadly the companies that have strong scores on those sorts of factors have tended to come through this crisis much more strongly than those that tend to have weak scores. I think that's partly coincidence, but partly there is something really fundamental to understand there as well. I think within the range of ESG factors, we've seen a tremendous amount of discussion on the importance of S factors, social factors going forward. So companies, for example, take Yum Brands in China, which has been to the fore in terms of the way it's treated its staff, the way it's helped the healthcare services, things like that. They clearly scored very well there, and our sense is that will be an advantage that endures for some time to come. Whereas companies that get those things wrong are probably likely to find both their customers and their shareholders find that harder to accept. So there's a little bit of a shifting going on, I think, uh, towards the S part of the equation. It probably was the one that had the least attention up until now, with much more focus on governance everywhere and the environment, particularly in Europe. 
why don't we kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about the earnings picture, given where we are today and the fact that a lot of companies are now reporting. There's obviously been a tremendous amount of speculation about what we're going to see. Can you talk to us about how the current environment has changed your expectations for 2020? Yes. We base our work on fundamental research. So in the weeks since the crisis, our analysts have been racing to adjust to the new reality. As I think I've already mentioned, but it's worth repeating, we've never seen things change as quickly as this across so many companies and across so many industries. So bottom line, before the crisis, globally, we were expecting earnings in the developed markets to rise by about 8% this year, so the highest single digits. Now we are forecasting minus 20, so 28 percentage points difference. We think that the published consensus of sell-side analysts is still less bad than that, still around 11 or 12, but it's falling rapidly. The numbers in the U.S., for example, last week came down by five percentage points as companies started to report. So these numbers are probably still all a little bit too high, but directionally, we think that's about right. Europe is the worst. We think earnings there are down a little over 30%. That's 35% worse than we thought before the crisis. The U.S. kind of in the middle, down around 18. And then earnings in Japan holding a little bit better, down around 12, 13. But everywhere you can see enormous drops. But again, it's not so much the regions. I think it's the industry. So we think globally energy earnings are down 90% this year, basically profitability in the energy industry gets almost wiped out, as we see it at the moment. Automobile manufacturing down 70%, consumer cyclicals down 55%, banks down 50%, thanks to primarily, of course, higher provisions, but also the impact of dramatically lower interest rates in the US as well. On the other hand, we've got earnings in software up this year. Healthcare earnings are going to be flat. And some of the winners, as they've been reporting in recent weeks, have just underlined that strength. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, for example, a global powerhouse in that business, they reported about a week ago, 52% gross margin, pretty good. They maintained their view that their sales will grow high single digit this year. They're not changing their capital spending plans, $15 billion, a good example of a strong company getting even stronger through this. But as much as the short term, I think it's really important to think about what happens next, because I think markets have already begun to, as you can see in prices, look through what's going on right now and think about next year and beyond. We do see a bounce back next year, of course, but we still think you end up with profits in the developed world 10 to 15% below where they would have been otherwise, and that number may even be conservative. So we don't think it's as simple as a switch being flicked, profitability recovers, and by this time next year, it's as if nothing had ever happened. We think the recovery will be slow and sometimes painful, and net, we're going to lose at least two or three years' worth of earnings growth across the developed markets. And it's also important, I think, to really think beyond the bounce back, whichever letter in the alphabet you choose to describe it. You don't hear so many V-shapes these days, more U's or L's, whichever letter it might be. What are the longer-term changes that come about as a result of everything that we are living through at the moment? And we've asked our analysts to think about that now. They spent a week or so pulling together their thoughts, and we've collated them into three themes, how we see consumer behavior changing, how we see corporate behavior changing, and then the government regulatory environment. And the broad summary of all of these is that we think that the impact of this crisis will be just to accelerate structural changes that were already underway and taking place. So, for example, when we look at consumer behavior, obviously, the whole work from home trend will be accelerated. 
the use of online alternatives to traditional businesses. That's nothing new, but it's dramatically accelerating at the moment, both the online specialist and then the multi-channel model, which seems to be the winner in retail right now. On top of that, we think you have to lay in an increased consumer savings rate as people look to rebuild the damage and then better prepare for uncertainty ahead. People obviously were shocked by what's happening and how quickly. So that's going to have an impact on many parts of the consumer business. In the corporate world, of course, the digital transformation, the shift to cloud is only going to accelerate. We think public cloud is a trillion-dollar opportunity, and we're about 20% of the way through that. Uh, We think there will be, perhaps this one's a little new, less emphasis on globalization and global supply chains, and just more broadly, a trend in which the strong are going to get stronger. Many weaker companies had sort of propped things up in recent years by borrowing cheaply, buying back stock. And that now looks like it's going to be very difficult to maintain. Andy Grove, the legendary CEO of Intel, once said that in a crisis, weak companies are destroyed, good companies survive, and great ones get even stronger. And as a sort of tagline for everything that we see happening, playing out beyond 21, then I think that's a pretty decent way to sort of look at things. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And your comments on healthcare and software as a contrast to energy, really helps to address my next question, which was going to be about your views on the sectors. And it sounds like there's pretty clear winners and losers in each of those. So maybe if we can think about looking at this crisis relative to what happened back in 2008 and the dot-com bubble and things that took place before that, can you speak to us about the mechanics of this specific crisis and how it might be different? Are there any points to note from a trading and transaction standpoint that your team is seeing? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how the transition to the work from home has been for everyone, because certainly it's been an adjustment, but would love to get any anecdotes that you have and could share with the group. Yeah, no, I would, but I would actually like to get back, Catherine. So we talked about the earnings, but in terms of actually deciding what to do, there is another hugely important part of all of this for investors, which is the prices that you're paying, right? So I would like to, if I could just take a minute on that, because As we sat down in our quarterly meeting and thought about attractive versus unattractive, probably the biggest question that we had to think about, and I still think the biggest question for stock pickers right now, is how much risk to take on low-priced names. For some investors who are just committed to owning always the best companies, the growth companies, that's not relevant. For other strategies that are more flexible, and particularly for value-based investors, thinking that through is really important. Because when we look at the markets around the world, then one of the most striking features is the gap between stocks that are high-priced and stocks that are low-priced is wider than we have ever seen. Our records go back 30 years or so. If we look at external research and some of the stuff that we get, then you can see people putting together a 100-year history of how stocks are priced within markets. And even then, you struggle to find a time at which the gap between stocks the market likes and the stocks the market doesn't like has been as wide as it is today. It's even wider than in March of 2000 at the peak of the internet bubble. Again, a level of differential pricing I thought we'd never see again, and yet here we are looking at it now. There's a very big difference, of course, between what we're looking at now and March of 2000. Back then, the anomaly was that the high-priced stocks were really, really high-priced, right? So if you look at global equities, the top quintile companies on average were trading at 45 times earnings. Typically, they trade at more like 25 to 30. And within that, there were some even more extreme types of prices. That ended very badly. Many of those companies turned out to be not that great. And when those not great businesses met a recession, particularly the ones that were leveraged, there were some pretty epic failures. 
and those stocks collapsed. And the great opportunity for stock pickers then was to avoid them. That is not what we are seeing right now. The highest price companies look a little bit rich, but nothing exceptional. You think you pay around 30 times for the highest quintile globally versus that average of 25 to 30. There's also some incredibly good companies there, right? They've got tons of cash and they're generating tons of cash. So just in the US, you take the FANG stocks and Microsoft, they generated almost $200 billion of free cash flow last year. So that is not the problem. It's the lowest price stocks now that really stand out. When we looked at the lowest price quintile globally at the end of March, we were looking at about six times earnings. That's about half the usual type of price. Now, since then, the stocks have bounced a bit and also the earnings have come down. But you still see this enormous discount for risk and uncertainty playing out across every single market. And thinking that one through and deciding what to do, is that an opportunity or is that just a source of risk because these companies are really what somebody wrote in the journal yesterday, more like call options at this point rather than stocks. So that is where we're spending a lot of time looking for stocks that we think have been unduly harshly treated by the market in recent weeks, perhaps not really venturing into the most dangerous part of the market, the highly levered companies that are really facing the worst problems short term, but certainly been willing to do the research and trying to find some bargains because the level of discounts available is just unbelievably high. So I thought it was worth coming back to that because actually that's sort of one of the big things that we're talking about discussing right now and plays into whether we think clients should be looking at value strategies as well. Now, in terms of the crisis, so managing through periods of bad markets, I guess, is just part of being in the equity business. I've been doing this for a while now. My first crisis was the crash of 1987 when I was six months into my career as a portfolio manager, about three years into the business. So that was certainly a memorable one. And there have been many since then. And when I think about this crisis, it has both familiar and unfamiliar aspects to it. So the familiar aspect, of course, is that at times of extreme stress in markets and the financial system, then you must focus even more than usual on risk management across all aspects of the trading and the operational environment. The counterparty risk, prime broking risk, securities lending agents, all these sorts of things, you've really got to make sure you know exactly what's going on. You also have to deal with markets that are less liquid and much more expensive to trade, even at a time when you have higher volumes of equity to trade yourself. You have to think about liquidity management too, particularly in open-ended funds if you're facing redemption. The key to all of that, of course, is preparing in the good times and learning from past experiences and then stepping up your surveillance and your sharing of ideas during the crisis itself. So we've been having daily calls with our risk team across asset management. We've been having daily cross-market calls to compare notes between the different investment teams, sharing ideas and trying to identify problems. I would say this time, we've seen very few issues for equity investors aside from more expensive trading. Now, that happens, right? So the spread on a typical name in the S&P 500 went from three basis points in February to more than 20 basis points at one point in March. They're now back down to 10, but they still remain, spreads there remain elevated. And then liquidity is down a lot as well. So top of book, liquid position sizing, running about half where it used to be. So to trade a 2% slice of the Russell 2000, been costing about 50 basis points this year. That's about twice normal. We saw 90 basis points at times during March. It was costing more to trade U.S. small cap stocks than trading famously illiquid markets like Greece or Austria and Europe, stuff like that. So that's been something to deal with. But the action taken by the Federal Reserve I think also all the years that have gone into strengthening the capital position of the financial system since 2008, we haven't yet, 
unfortunately, see any serious counterparty issues, that kind of risk across our business. Also, interestingly, redemptions have been very, very modest. We saw a little bit of money out in March from our open-ended funds as the sort of fear spread through markets. That's actually turned around recently. We've seen money coming into many parts of our business, particularly strategies like equity income and large-cap growth in the U.S., our international focus strategy, global emerging markets. We've seen clients continuing to add to those, and the flow picture has been very, very mild by past standards. We see many institutional clients rebalancing into equities. So that's been perhaps less of a feature than in previous crises. But what is new, of course, are the health issues and the need to dramatically change the work environment. And it's hard, looking back on this, it's thinking about the call. By March 23rd in Asset Manager, we were close to 100% of people working out of the office in Europe and the US. So in seven days, we went from everybody in to more or less everybody out. Of course, we had some practice in that Asia had moved to a split working system about six weeks before that, given the earlier appearance of the virus there. And that needs to adapt to working from home coincided with the busiest time we have ever had in equities. So as portfolio managers look to mitigate risk in the early stages of the downturn, we were running at trading volumes, running at three to four times through our desks, and all of that had to be handled remotely. I think it's a testament to the incredible progress made in terms of technology that we were able to do that with minimal disruptions. The other aspect of working from home that's new, of course, is that the team never actually gets to see each other other than at the other end of a video call and all the various options that we have for doing that. And that's working well, but we found it's important to just make sure we pay attention to the soft things as well. So each team has been organizing events that are supposed to be a bit more fun, recognizing that working from home through a crisis is hard, it's grueling, it gets boring for people, and it can be very stressful. So whether it's social events at the end of the week, whether it's our emerging markets team doing a daily quiz when their markets close, whatever it might be, we've done global equity town halls to try to make sure everyone's connected just trying to make sure that everyone feels connected to each other at a time when there's an awful lot going on in a very different type of reality to the one that we're used to. And the company, too, has been thinking hard about the need to look after people, to think about wellness, and make a lot of resources available for people who are having a tough time. Because, of course, for many people, this is extremely difficult personally as well as professionally, and we really try to remember that. So that's the part that is new in terms of dealing with this crisis and completely different to anything that we've seen before. Yeah, that's great to hear. I think we talk a lot about the increase in technology spend, and it's helpful to hear that things are working as they should in these periods of stress. So that's definitely helpful. One other question I did have is that you mentioned rebalancing. A lot of our clients have been very busy over the last month making those changes and shifts within the equity and fixing income portfolios. Do you have any thoughts on rebalancing, any considerations that you would highlight for this institutional audience? Well, I guess people pick a target asset allocation for a reason. A lot of thought goes into that. And I think often the best results come from not deviating from it. And when markets drop sharply and the discipline tells you to rebalance, then I think typically that is the best thing to do. I remember a lot of discussions with clients after 2008 as to whether or not the original asset allocation was still justified. And in the end, it was, and rebalancing was the right thing to do, just as it's right to take money out after markets have been strong. From where I sit, we do think markets are going to give you decent returns. We don't really have a clue, frankly, about what's going to happen in the short term. Volatility remains very high. I think our portfolio managers would mostly argue 
that they would be surprised to see new lows, but they wouldn't be surprised to see retests. And we've had some pretty spectacular gains in recent weeks. So there are a lot of different things that could happen short term. But in terms of running a long-term asset allocation plan, I would be in favor of rebalancing in if that weighting has dropped below wherever the target was, thanks to price action. It's not just that we think ultimately equities will recover and companies will generate enough profits to justify these sorts of prices, but it's also the returns on some of the alternatives have faded as well. So yes, I would rebalance and I don't think what we are seeing necessarily means a rethink of a commitment to equity. Great. Thanks, Paul. We hope today's call was impactful for all of you listening, and we want to thank you for your partnership. If you need any additional information on anything that was discussed today with Paul, please feel free to reach out to your J.P. Morgan client advisor. I want to thank you again for participating with us. Please stay safe. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, 
by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia. To wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.